0: You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thanks for joining me. What's coming out more and more about the massacre on October 7th in Simchas Torah is how these Arabs from Gaza, some were regular workers for these communities. They worked there. They were coddled by the residents. The Arabs left their children at the kindergarten of these kibbutzim and these communities, and the Jews totally trusted them. They would call their Arab handyman their connection to Gaza. There was a couple that used to drive the Arabs from Gaza back and forth to the hospital. So they had great relations with their Arab neighbors, just like the Jews and Arabs got along in Hebron until the 1929 massacre. It didn't take much to turn those Arabs into monsters. And because these Arabs were working in these communities, they knew these places so well, they had it all mapped out. They knew where the head guy of the security lived. They knew where the gun was, the kindergartens. They knew where everybody was. They had these places scoped out. They had the intelligence and they received that intelligence from those nice Arab workers who were working there. Now, this has got to be a lesson to the communities in Hudan Shamron, who totally depend on Arab labor except for a select few Batayan, Yitzhar, Elan Morey. There are a couple of settlements that use just Hebrew labor. But for these settlements to continue to use Arab labor after what happened, and as time goes on, and the memory fades of the massacre, you'll see the Arabs coming back to work in Yudan Shemron. In Europe, before the Holocaust, all the Jews who were living in Poland, Germany, and Austria, Czechoslovakia, any Jew will tell you that they get along just fine with their non-Jewish neighbors. They never felt anti-Semitism. And for years, they lived with their Gentile neighbors in harmony. But then when push comes to shove, those Gentiles who are always nice to you, who you always got along with, when push comes to shove, they're going to line up with their own. So at the end of the day, you're still a Jew and they're a Gentile. When the Arab turns on you, he doesn't just side with your enemy but he'll happily murder you in the cruelest way. And Rabbi Kahane never stopped warning us of the face of Yishmael in every possible way, through his books, through his lectures. And I want to read one particular article he wrote in 1989. I'm not going to read the whole thing, just some of it. And the name of the article is The Holocaust of Yishmael Future. And what happened was that the body of a 38-year-old Jew named Michael Ashtamkar, whose family had come from India and lived in a poor Moshav in Jerusalem. His body was found so badly mutilated and the rabbi describes it in detail to scare us because he saw the tip of the iceberg. He didn't have to wait until it happens on a massive level. He didn't have to wait until you have a massacre like the one we just had. It was already happening, but it was happening sporadically. But the rabbi saw the tip of the iceberg. So after describing in detail what they did to this poor Jew, just says like this, the Torah long ago intoned the character of the first Ishmael saying, and he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man and every man against him. And the rabbi continues, his descendants have fulfilled the Torah description. Wild, savage, brutal, barbaric animals, beasts, wild men. They commit unspeakable atrocities against each other. How much more so against Jews? And before I go on, I remember after the massacre of Sabra and Shatila in the early 80s, when Christian Arabs massacred Muslim Arabs and everybody was blaming Israel for it and Sharon was brought to trial and so forth. Rabbi Kahana said back then that the only relevant lesson of Sabra and Shatila is that's the Arab and that's what he would do to every Jew if he could. That's what they do to each other. Imagine what they would do to every Jew if they could. That's what Rabbi Kahana learned from Sabra and Shatila. Anyway, I want to return to this article called The Holocaust of Ishmael Future. It says like this, they commit unspeakable atrocities against each other, how much more so against Jews. Friendship is a thing that has no meaning. A word, a promise is made to be broken. And so the Yisraelite murderer and the Jew murdered worked together and shared life together. That's what happened with this particular Jew and his murderer. No matter, while the Jew slept, the Ishmaelites murdered him. It was so similar in Hebron in 1929. There too, Arabs, who had lived side by side with the Jews for decades, even centuries, one day turned on their neighbors in a savage outburst of Yishmaelism. Jews were massacred in ways too brutal to describe. Women, children were savage and hacked to pieces. Yishmael, the wild man from time immemorial. So what happened two weeks ago, it's nothing new. The only difference is you can see it now on your phone. The rabbi continues, and this is what they would do to every Jew if we would be so mad as to allow the mad leftists of Israel to win their struggle on behalf of the oppressed Palestinians. Every Jew who sits quietly and allows these disturbed reform rabbis in the American Jewish Congress, the Schindlers, and all these other leftists of that time, all these products of a diseased exile, as long as we let them have their way to continue their march on behalf of the poor Palestinians, anybody who's quiet about that, will share in the crime of the Yishmaelite Holocaust if, God forbid, it should ever succeed. So the rabbi is concerned here already in 1989 about a Yishmaelite Holocaust. And so never forget the name, Michal Ashtamker, that's the name of the murdered Jew. Never forget that he was murdered by Yishmael. Never forget how he was murdered by Yishmael. Never allow your rabbi and leaders to refuse to speak up to their congregation about the murder. Never allow the diseased including those who describe themselves as centrist orthodox, to lead Jews astray by perverting Torah and speaking of Jewish morality and mercy for Yishmael. Demand that the normal Jews be allowed to speak in your synagogues. Do not take no for an answer. Do not allow them to bar the voices of sanity. For we here in Israel face the Holocaust of the hatchets and knives. We face the Holocaust of Yishmael future. And the Jewish liberal leftist axis helps Yishmael sharpen his bloody axes. So that's one of a myriad of articles that Rabbi Kahana wrote about the impending danger. And of course, the rabbi didn't only write about it. He spoke about it all the time. Listen to this. If these people could, if they could, they would bring upon us a shoah, a holocaust of hatchets and knives. I don't know what is wrong with us. I only know that we are not a normal people. I only know that if you are fighting a war, you don't love your enemy, you hate your enemy. And if you don't hate him, you are going to lose the war. And it's not just Rabbi Kahana. Anybody here of Nomi Shemer? Nomi Shemer was a famous Israeli singer. She wrote and sang the famous song Yerushalayim Shell Jerusalem of Gold. She wrote that after the Six Day War. So she's old school. And I guess in those days, not all entertainers were leftists like the Hollywood artists of today and the Jewish artists of today, I guess there was a time when uh, they were normal entertainers. So Nomi Shemer, she was Yemenite, by the way. Maybe that's why she was normal. She was a real national treasure besides being a singer and a songwriter. And this is what she said about the Arabs many years ago. She said like this, the Arabs, they like their murder hot and wet. And if they ever get the chance to do it, we are going to miss the sterile, efficient gas chambers of the Nazis. That's what Naomi Shemmer said. And you know, it's incredible that even now, after what happened, you don't hear from the pundits out there, all the commentators and the right-wingers, what the source of the problem is. Why has this come upon us? I was in Baltimore last week and I heard some far out stuff. I actually heard a rabbi say, and he's considered a, a guddle over there. He said that it happened because this past Rosh Hashanah, you see, we didn't blow the shofar because Rosh Hashanah came out on Shabbat. And that caused all kind of problems with Shemayim. I can't remember the vort, but that's your classic galut explanation. But even our people, what are they doing? They're blaming Oslo and the evacuation of Gush Katif. That's, that's why it happened? That's the culprit? But that's not it. The Oslo Accords, that was a symptom. It was a symptom of having Arabs in your land. You see, we got this problem in Israel. We got a lot of Arabs here. They're everywhere. And so, what is you supposed to do? I mean, you have to have some kind of Hesder, some kind of arrangement. You can't just let this keep going on, right? Now Rabbi Kahana suggested that, you know, we throw them out. Arab But if you're not gonna do that, you gotta do something. So they came up with Oslo. They knew they can't handle all these Arabs. They knew they can't handle this huge Arab population. So what do they say? We'll let these Arabs, the, we'll let the PLO Arabs, or Arafat, police the other Arabs. Of course, it was ridiculous. And we all knew that the results would be tragic. But that's not the problem. That was the there they came up with because they got a problem of Arabs in the country. Let's say you never had Oslo, okay? Let's say it just stayed the way it was. We didn't withdraw. We didn't give anything away. We just stayed the way it was those communities in Gush Katif will stay there and the communities in Northern Shamron will stay there. Well, don't you think they were in danger anyway? Don't you think this could have happened anyway? So it's easy to say, you're not allowed to withdraw. You have to hold on to the land of Israel. You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't make a pact with them. Yeah, but what should you do? I know what you can't do, but what can you do? You got to do something about the situation. You got to have some kind of solution. And Shimon Peres would always ask the right wing who was opposing Oslo at the time, he'd say, Ma alternativa what's your alternative? And Perez was right. The right never did have an alternative. That's why Oslo happened. Because if you have no plan what to do with the burgeoning Arab population, then you got to do something. And Oslo was that something. So the minute that the right rejected Rabbi Kahana's answer of expulsion of the Arabs, of course you had to get something in its place. So Oslo is not the problem. It's a symptom. If we had just let the status quo remain and not have Oslo, we'd be in the same amount of danger. Like I said, last week I was in the United States for a week or so. And all I did was watch Fox News. What else am I going to do? And every second, 24-7, was on what's going on in Israel, the war in Israel. I mean, I understand it's a big news item. But if you ever watch CNN or Fox, they jump around to some other things once in a while. The only thing they show now is what's going on in Israel and maybe a tiny bit on the Speaker of the House. But it's all about Israel. They're making it seem like it's about to be World War III. Maybe it will be. But it's got to show you one thing. Aren't we in the center of the world? If anybody has any doubts about the prophecies, how it's all going to end up about Jerusalem, how the Jews are always going to be the focus of the world, this tiny country, everything's about us. If that doesn't make you believe in the centrality of Am Israel, what else could? Why don't the news stations cover the Russia and Ukraine war like this? They go to it, they jump around, they go to another story. Not now. All eyes on Israel. Jewish people. What are they going to do? And so, of course, I was watching when that hospital was bombed. And it wasn't even a hospital. It was a parking lot of the hospital. Oh, when they thought it was a hospital blown up and 500, 500 residents of Gaza were killed. Oh, that was a time to sweat. But thank God. We didn't do it. They did it to themselves and we can prove it. And Israel was able to prove it. Hey, wait a minute. If Israel has such intelligence, it's so good that they can pick up or overhear the Hamas operatives on their phones that they accidentally bombed their own hospital. Why couldn't they detect the largest terror attack of all times that's been planned for a year? But that's another podcast. But the thing is this, okay, the Arabs blow up their own hospital and so everybody's expressing relief. Oh, Hashem, they did it to themselves. We didn't do it. Shouldn't we be celebrating and saying, yes, Yofi, they launched a missile intended to kill Jews and it killed Arabs instead. How glorious is God measure for measure. No, instead we repeat the same drivel how the Hamas doesn't care about their civilians, you know, they don't care about human life. They use them as shields. If I hear that one more time, I'm going to puke. The Hamas doesn't care about the Arab citizens. I don't care about them either. Rabbi Khan always said that the life of one Jewish soldier is more valuable than all the Arabs in Gaza put together. And of course, it was big news. Biden pays a visit. He paid a visit to Israel. It took him a couple of years to meet with Bibi. He didn't meet in Jerusalem, only in Tel Aviv. And of course, he didn't come to support Israel. He's still giving money to Iran. He's the cause of the proliferation of the Hamas and the Hezbollah. He came to handcuff Israel. And a few days ago, he gave a speech to the American public, which made no sense. He basically paralleled what's going on in Israel to what's going on in Ukraine. You know, you watch this guy, Joe Biden, and it's unbelievable that he's the leader of the free world. Sleepy, sloppy Joe. And I think that Hashem, he puts somebody such a putz, somebody like that, he puts him in power to show how ridiculous it is to fear flesh and blood. Hashem saying, you fear that? You, the Jewish nation, the chosen people of Hashem, gravel to that? That's who you bow down to? Mr. Magu? This is the guy who's going to tell us not to exaggerate our response in Gaza? And so, yeah, Hashem placed Mr. Magu as the President of the United States to show the absurdity and the futility in fearing Man more than God. Anyway, I want to move on to something in the Tanakh. As you know, I give a class. And by the way, you can listen to my Bible classes. Google any Goldberg's Bible classes. It's a podcast on Spotify and other platforms. And if a Jew wants guidance on what we should do today, he looks at his Bible. Because the Bible, in so many ways, is really a book of wars. I mean, there are a lot of wars in the Bible. The book of Joshua, the book of Judges, Shmuel, Kings. Page after page, Jews are fighting wars. And in the book of Kings, there's a story, which I think is really relevant for today. It's about a king of Israel who kind of behaved like, you know, Bibi Netanyahu. He didn't go all the way. He didn't finish the job in defeating the enemy. And by leaving the enemy alive, it led to cruelty and tragedy. And this episode is found in Kings 2, chapter 13. And the situation is that Elisha, the prophet, who was a prophet during the days of the 10 tribes, Machut Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And he was a student of Elijah the prophet. And both he and Elijah were constantly warning the 10 tribes, do tshuva, repent, because if not, tragedy is going to strike and you're going to be exiled from this land. And so after a life of dedication to the Jewish people, Elisha, at this point in the story, in Kings 2 chapter 13, he's on his deathbed. He's very, very ill. And the king of Israel, the king of the 10 tribes, His name was Yoash. Now, he wasn't a righteous king, but he had great respect for Elisha the prophet. And he came to pay a visit to the dying prophet. So while Yoash is in Elisha's room, I'm going to read the verses of the conversation that took place. The prophet Elisha said to King Yoash, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. And Elisha said, take the bow in your hands. And when Yoash took the bow, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he tells Yoash, open the east window because the east window faced Aram, Syria, which was the major enemy of the Jewish people at that time. Okay, so Joash opens the east window and Elisha says, shoot the arrow. And he shot it. And Elisha declared, this is the arrow of victory over Aram. You will completely destroy the Arameans. Okay, so this arrow that Elisha told Yoash to shoot towards Aram was symbolic. It's a symbol of Jewish victory over Aram. Okay, so Elisha gives further instructions. He says, take the arrows. There's more arrows there. He says, take the arrows and strike them to the ground. So the king, he strikes it to the ground three times and he stops. And the verse is like this. And the man of God got angry with him and said, why did you stop? You should have struck the ground five or six times. You would have defeated Aram completely and destroyed it. But now that you only struck it three times, you won't defeat Aram all the way. It won't be a total victory. So what's happening? Elisha told King Yoash to strike the arrows to the ground like we do Chavatot you know, with the with, uh, Aravot. And so Yoash, he smashed it three times to the ground. Elisha didn't tell him how many times. He did it three times. And Elisha said, why'd you stop? You should have kept going. You should have smashed it at least five or six times to finish off the enemy. You should have broken those arrows. You should have smashed it so hard that you break those arrows. So that's what King Yoshe did wrong. And that's what the Israeli government does wrong. They don't smash the enemy to the ground. They hit him a little bit, but they don't hit him hard enough. They hit him a little bit, a couple of times, and then they stop. You know, there once was a Jew and he was captured in Gaza. His name was Samson. He was a judge in Israel. And he had an unorthodox style of leadership, you could say, I mean, he was an Orthodox Jew, but he conducted himself differently than any other leader. In that sense, he was unorthodox. And he was different than all the other judges because the other judges like Dvorah, Yiftah, or Gidon, they led an army. But Samson, he didn't have an army. He was a one-man show. It wasn't his fault. It's just that his entire generation was afraid of the Philistines. So he had to slay the Philistines by making it seem like it was personal. He didn't do it because of national motives. It was personal. And that way he wouldn't implicate his beloved people. Anyway, eventually the Philistines captured Shimshon and they bound him and they mocked him. And they said, hey, we got the big Jew. And Shimshon requested that God remember him and help him avenge the honor of Hashem that's being profaned. Remember me. Bring my strength back. See, Shimshon didn't even care about his personal suffering. He was only concerned with the Chil shem that it was causing, that he was being mocked, that he was being mocked as a representative of the Jewish people, as the Jewish hero. And God did answer his prayer and strengthened him. And we know what Shimshon did. He brought the house down on the Philistines, thousands of them in Aza. And you can bet that some of those Philistines were, you know, little children. Who do you think was in that stadium? just, you know, Philistine soldiers. They're all mocking Shimshon, men, women, children, all those nice citizens from Gaza. And God answered Samson, even though Samson may have sinned. No matter, he answered Samson to avenge the humiliation of his holy name. He brought the house down on the residents of Gaza. That is, he answered Shimshon's prayers, even though Samson may not have been totally worthy. So, oh God, we're not worthy either a lot less worthy than Samson was, but bring the house down, bring the buildings down, bring down the hospitals, and crush them, crush those Arabs from Gaza, like Shimshon did. Not for our sake, but for Hadam Avadecha Shafuch, for the sake of the Jewish martyrs, for the sake of your holy name that we represent.